if I'm talking about my kids or about my family or about even, you know, my my life in Pakistan, it would make more of an impact. People would be more interested. People would ask more questions and, and understand more than if I was just showing them a bunch of statistics or graphs or something like that. And kind of at some point click that storytelling is a better way of presenting the same information. Hello and welcome to the Alien Chronicles podcast. I am your host, Sadia Khan. Each week, we bring you inspiring immigrant stories from comedians to writers to activists. Our guests never fail to bring compelling perspectives. Our today's guest grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. By the way, she has the same name as me. Isn't that exciting? Sadia Farooqi is a Pakistani-American author, essay writer, and an interfaith activist. She writes children's early reader series, Yasmin, published by Capstone. She also has written Brick Walls, Tales of Hope and Courage from Pakistan, a short story collection for adults and teens. As part of her activism, Sadia trains various audiences, including faith groups and law enforcement on topics about Islam, and we will talk to Sadia about all of this. She was also featured in Oprah Magazine in 2017 as a woman making a difference in her community. She is the editor-in-chief of Blue Minaret, a magazine for Muslim art, poetry, and prose. She resides in Houston, Texas with her husband and children. We will talk to Sadia about this and a lot more. So let's get started. Welcome, Sadia. So excited to have you on my show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I've been listening to some of the previous episodes and it's uh, very interesting stuff you have every week. Thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to schedule something because I believe you're traveling next week, right? I'm traveling a lot all the time. So yes, next week, as well as other places, I do a lot of school visits and trainings and conferences. And so, yeah. So, Sadia, we'll start with your immigrant story, because that's the crux of this interview and what our focus is. So what is your immigrant story? Yeah, sure. Uh, Like you mentioned, I was born in Karachi, Pakistan. I grew up there. I was in my early 20s when I got married, and my husband was already here in the U.S., also a Pakistani, but studying in Houston. And we got married. And so just like so many other brides over the decades and centuries, I also moved uh, to be with him. That's how I came here. We originally were here on uh, work visas. And, you know, it took a while uh, to kind of everything takes so long in the immigration process, which uh, no one ever tells you when you get started. And so it was it was pretty painless and uh, simple, but uh, I've been here 20 years now. You know, that's uh, that's how I came here. I, I've studied here on my own, but it was always as part of a family community here and not not just on my own. So, Sadia, what were initial few years like for you in the U.S.? Oh, my God. Personally, very emotionally, I think, isolating. I didn't have any family. It was just me and my husband. And, you know, I wasn't doing anything at first. And so it was a lot of crying and a lot of like, what have I done? And, you know, I want to go back to home. And and it was only when I started, I finally I had been doing my MBA in Pakistan. And so I decided to continue that. And when I got admission in university is when it kind of started becoming easier. So I think that it was initially huge, you know, 
sticker shock for me. I didn't really, we ha- we all, especially living in countries like Pakistan, have this idea of what the U.S. is going to be like and how it's just going to solve all your problems if you immigrate. And I, I grew up poor, so just being in a country where you had things and, and had money and, and were able to have freedom and everything was just very intoxicating. But reality is harsher. In what ways is reality harsher? Well, I think that the loneliness of being an immigrant is is hardly ever kind of talked about. And maybe because everyone is not lonely, a lot of people come with their families and I didn't. So for me, that was a very big thing. I, I left my parents, my siblings, my cousins, I mean, everybody who I really knew. And especially, you know, being a newly married couple, uh, my husband was working. And so I, I would be alone at home all day, not knowing how to drive, not knowing anybody, not just being in this apartment. It was just very, it was it was a dark time, you know, and, and the poor guy, my husband, he would come home from work and then he'd be like, okay, let's go, let's go out somewhere. And it was, you know, he, he was very eager to get me to learn how to drive. And he was like, you should go study something, do something. And I think that was, that was initially what being lonely, not knowing what to do with myself, just everything is different. And I am very lucky because I already knew English. I mean, we grew up in an English speaking household in Pakistan. So when I came here, it wasn't one of those obstacles. I have a lot of, you know, even in my in-laws who are uh, who have told me that for them, their immigrant stories were much harder because of the language barrier. And I'm so grateful I didn't have that. I don't know what I would have done if that was an addition to not even being able to talk to anyone or understanding much. And it takes time, right? Because what you're saying is so similar to what I experienced. I came in early 2000s and it was the same story, like missing my family and missing my friends. But then and and I think for most of us immigrants, uh, I just feel like we are like nomads, right? Our home is amorphous. We don't uh, really settle in one place, but then we eventually find our roots. And in what ways did you find your roots in the U.S.? For me, it was mostly my work. So when I went back to school there, when we were, you know, after about a year or so, I realized that I can at least study and continue my studies when I kind of the haze of the everything that was going on kind of left me. And the studies were so easy for me because I already, you know, was just basically repetition of something. We have much more rigorous kind of education in, in Pakistan than they do here, especially in the early years, if you're just going through community college or regular college. And I started volunteering for a nonprofit organization. And it was just, that was the time when I realized, okay, this I, I need to be doing something that's productive. And I feel like that was really the start of being, I, I still, the, my entire career for the last 20 years now, thanks to that volunteer work is in nonprofits and writing and everything. And so even more than family, we didn't have kids for many, many years. And so that was my roots was my volunteer work. College was not at all my, you know, everybody was way younger than I was. So it was more, but you know, it was very different. I, I didn't find anything really to keep me, like you said, roots wise or, or having an interest or passion in college, except I knew I needed to get it done. Yeah. And then your journey evolves, right? Uh, minded to and I, I see that you you started writing. What triggered the idea of writing your short story collection, Brick Walls? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That was uh, several years I later started doing 
cultural sensitivity training, which was more, you know, like religious training. So people would invite me, groups would invite me, and I would go and talk about Muslims, about this was, you know, just after 9-11. And people were, uh, there were groups who really wanted to kind of learn more about their Muslim neighbors. And I was kind of becoming more and more informally in my own city, the resource for that. And after many years, I, I think that I got burned out doing that. I got burned out just listening to the same questions over and over, not really seeing any big changes over the years in terms of how people were responding to Muslims and how um, the questions were still the same even after a decade or so. But I did realize uh, that whenever I would speak to an audience and I would tell a story, it would have more of an impact. And the story didn't have to be a makeup made up story, obviously because that's not the context it would be, you know, if I'm talking about my kids or about my family or about even, you know, my, my life in Pakistan, it would make more of an impact. People would be more interested. People would ask more questions and and understand more than if I was just showing them a bunch of statistics or graphs or something like that. And kind of at some point click that storytelling is a better way of presenting the same information because I'm not saying don't believe the media, all Muslims are bad or whatever, but I'm saying, look at me, this is me, I'm a Muslim, and I'm like this, and my family is like this, so maybe what you hear isn't all that accurate. And at some point, I just, I was so tired of doing the same thing over and over. I said, let me try something different. People had a lot of questions about Pakistan, just because everything in the news seems to be negative about so many countries, you know, just... What kind of questions did people have about Pakistan specifically? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) You won't believe. I mean, you know, it really depended on the audience. You, It was like such a wide spectrum. I would hear some very ignorant stuff like, you know, well, did you live on a tree? You know, and that was obviously something very specific to... You know, I remember at one time, and this is something my sister-in-law told me. She was, she said that they went to a restaurant once and people were like, oh, you're from Pakistan, is your camel parked outside? And, you know, it was just more very, you. they know what they're doing. They know why they're saying those things. But I think it's also, there's a lot of misunderstanding that people in Pakistan are all very poor. You know, basic questions that were really relevant were things like, oh, how is your English so good? Or, you know, how did you grow up going to a McDonald's restaurant? Oh, they have McDonald's there. Well, why wouldn't they? McDonald's is even probably on the moon and we don't know it. So (laughs) it's just not knowing the wide variety of life and understanding and thinking that all Pakistanis are just very rigid and and, um, religiously conservative, for example. But that was not my experience growing up. So, yeah, it was just... It ranged from very annoying questions to good questions. And I decided that, you know, somebody needs to answer all of those, uh, but not in another graph or a chart. So <laughs> let's let's do some stories. And and that's how you created Brick Walls, right? Yes, yes. It's a short story collection based in Pakistan. There are seven stories and they're kind of, each story is a, um, it talks about an issue. So there's a story about in which which centers around poverty, about gender inequality, about religious extremism, about terrorism, but they're actual fictional, you know, short stories. So you don't really under, realize that you're getting a message, which is, you know, that's good. That's how it should be done. 
So, Sadia, I want to go back to your training, your early training with law enforcement and other organizations on Islam. What are some of the most common misconceptions uh, among law enforcement when it comes to Islam? I think instead of misconceptions, I would just say not having enough information. The reason why I got, I started doing that specifically was the, the, the Houston Police Department invited me because at that time, and this was several years ago, there was a Muslim woman uh, who wore the hijab and she was arrested. There was some protests going on about Palestine in outside, and it was something that got a whole bunch of people arrested. And uh, they were all taken to the, the main jail and booked in for, I believe, a day or so. I'm not sure. And one of the girls, one of the people there was this Muslim girl. And part of their procedure is if you are going to be in going into the jail itself, you can't be wearing anything on your head. You know, it can be a hoodie or a jacket or anything. So they forced her to take her hijab off. And she was very upset and she was crying and you know, obviously that's their, their that's their procedure. They had to do it. And later on, when she was released, along with all the others, she was threatening to sue them. The the and this has happened many times. I've seen cases like this all over the country. But the HPD was very really proactive and concerned, and we weren't being discriminatory. But apparently, we did end up being. So how can we change this? So they called me in to do. And it was part of a bigger program. So there were different groups there who were being represented. And I was one of them to talk about stereotypes or misinformation or lack of information uh, so that they could do their jobs better. And so the, for them, it was more about how can we do our jobs as police officers and make sure that we're still not encroaching on anyone's civil rights. And so it was geared towards get, helping them do their jobs better. So we talked about, you know, okay, if you if a Muslim woman is arrested, how do you deal with that? You know, how, how, what, you, what can you do to make sure that you're still following procedures, but then also make sure that you're not infringing on her rights? And, you know, if you enter a Muslim home, what are some things to, you know, so, the, so they had a lot of questions because they've been living in those communities for a long time and they'd always had, you know, well, I come into this house and uh, only the man will talk to me. And why is that, you know, or if there's a case of abuse and a woman is wearing a burqa and I don't know how to make sure that she's safe. So it was very practical kind of stuff. And we went over, you know, was more question answer. I had a little thing. So I don't think it was misinformation because most most people who are dealing with community members of a different group are aware of nuances, but they it was more questions. And talking about hijab, I just want to talk a little bit about you wear headscarf, right? And and so you are identifiably Muslim because you wear your headscarf. Yeah. Have you faced any discrimination? <laughs> you discri- can spot me a mile away. Yes, people can. Exactly. And have you faced any discrimination over the years? And how do you respond to it? And how has it changed post-2016 elections? You know, I am very lucky that I live in Houston, which is probably the most awesome city I've ever been in. It is very multicultural. It's very open and inviting. And so personally, I have not faced it within from outsiders any actual cases of, you know, discrimination or or hatred. But I have other friends who have. I mean, I have several friends who have come to me and told me about things that have been said to them and shouted at them. So I feel that I could easily have been, that could have happened to me, but it hasn't so far, touch wood. 
I would say that my biggest, I don't know if discrimination is the right word, but my biggest issue has been people within my own communities. So I, for example, I wear a job, but that's, I'm the only one in my family who does. And so it's very interesting how, you know, sometimes people that I know who I love, who have lived with my entire life will say stuff to me, which is very interesting. And so it's, um, but you know, you tend to, I don't know. That's just, that's the, it's part of uh, faith and um, you learn to live with it. Uh, I've had after uh, the elections, I think that I have seen a lot of actually more uh, gestures of solidarity also. Uh, there are people, especially in Houston, very, like I said, we're very, it's an awesome city. There have been people who come up and say nice things just because they know that Muslims are going through stuff. So it's always the, it's always a double-edged sword. You don't know who your enemies really are or you don't know who's uncomfortable with it and who's not. I tend to surround myself with people who are okay with me. So I don't, <laughs> I don't get into that much trouble. Sadi, this is an extremely important point because uh, especially with regards to how people within Muslim community perceive hijab. And um, you and I were talking about this before the interview, that there are two different schools of thought. Uh, There are women like me who don't wear hijab, and I don't feel like it's ordained in religion. And then there are women like you who wear hijab, and that's an expression of who they are and their identity. And it's extremely important that we respect both perspectives. And um, this, this whole notion of every Muslim woman who is wearing hijab is somehow oppressed. I, and I'm not discounting women who who are in uh, patriarchal societies and who have been discriminated against and who are persecuted. Yeah. But we have to understand that women like you, many, many women like you, who use this as an expression of their freedom and their identity, we should respect that. And this, this whole tension be- within Muslim community undermining um, the other, and in, in this case, is, um, women who don't or who do wear hijab is just sad, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think that, you know, and coming from the background of not always being a hijab-wearing person, I've seen that a lot. You know, I didn't wear, I, I didn't grow up in a very religious atmosphere. Um, we kind of, my family used to look down on hijab as something that you did if you were like an extremist or um, you were uneducated. And then I became more like a born again Muslim in my teens and 20s. And I didn't actually start wearing hijab till probably around 30 years old. And so I've seen kind of both sides. And yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that now it's also the added political tension of it, which makes, you know, for example, if I have uh, uh, my my darling mother who will always be advising me against a job, which she doesn't anymore. I think it was more in the early days when she was like, oh, my God, well, what happened to you? But I think it's also a concern about my safety because I'm always going out and, and I have ha- I have heard of so many instances. And so, uh, you know, certainly my husband feels worried if I'm going out in a certain kind of dress. So it's it's very complicated. I don't think it's something that's simplistic at all. It's not only religious. There's so much cultural and political undertones to it. I do understand that parents worry and, and it is a um, safety concern as well. But I think then it boils down to 
how Muslims are defined um, in, in West, especially Muslim women. And I've said it time and again, we are not a monolith group. Um, however, somehow Western society has this very narrow definition of who we are, what we look like, even our personalities, right? So how do we broaden yeah. that definition to include like all of us, those who wear hijab, those who don't, even those who some of us drink alcohol, some some of us don't. And how do we disabuse West of the notion of this monolithic identity of Muslim women and let them know that those who wear hijab are, they are not conservative in ways that West defines them to be? Uh, I mean, if you were asked me, I would go back to what has been my uh, mission for such a long time, which is storytelling. You know, for example, in the books that I write, you will see that there's so much variety in the characters. And that's part of how I bring that point across. And even if you just take brick walls, which is a very simplistic and very just like a microcosm of Pakistan itself only, you will see, you know, there are so many Muslim characters all identifying as Muslim. But they are, like you said, so many different kinds and understandings of dress and culture and what you do and what you can't do. I think that in that entire collection, there is, oh my gosh, maybe not even one person who wears hijab or maybe one. Uh, the terrorist who, who kills people is also identifying as Muslim and the person who is fighting against the terrorist is also identifying as Muslim. And like you said, there's there's so much diversity. And I think that that's why fiction, that's, that's why I was drawn to fiction, even though I initially started from the more factual training aspect of just, you know, this is what the verses are and this is what the statistics say and this is what facts say. But I was drawn to fiction because I realized that you could bring those points across so much better. Even currently, you know, the books that I write for kids, it is so much. For example, I have a book coming out next year, inshallah, which is about a Muslim family uh, where, you know, the the mother wears hijab, but the daughter doesn't. And so we, I think that you will see a lot of writers presenting those diverse viewpoints in a way that a reader, readers can look and say, hmm, I didn't really realize that this was also possible. And so I think that for people in general, reading widely, reading books of different cultures and different types of writers and different genres, is so, is so important. I mean, I can't, I can't stress that enough that reading really, really does help a lot in that. And Sadia, talking about your books, I also want to talk about your children's early readers series, Yasmin. Can you talk a little bit about that and what is the character all about and why why did you start that series? Uh, yeah, it's interesting because I didn't realize it would be such a big thing. We've got the book is now doing so well, it's really taking off. I wrote it, honestly, as uh, just for my daughter. My daughter was in kindergarten at that time, and she just wouldn't read. When she was starting to read by herself, she would look at books and she would be like, no thanks. And it was worrying to me because we're big readers in our family. And I just, I was, I was horrified that I would have a child who didn't like books. How was that <laughs> even possible? So I, I sat down and I was like, what's the problem? Why aren't you into all this? See this book, this book. And she she said, 
none of these people look like me. I don't want to read about them. And I was like, what? No, that's not true. So I went back to the library and I researched a ton of books. Um, you know, she was reading at that stage, which is called early readers, which are slightly higher than picture books, but they're little chapters and just maybe, you know, very short stories. And she was right. There was very, there was no main character that was a Muslim. There was no main character that was brown. There was no main character that was an immigrant. And she's a sensitive girl. She was able to pick up on that. And I, I wasn't aware because I have an older son, and my older son is reading everything. So it was. It, I think that for her, it was important. And so I decided, wait a minute, I'm a writer. I can really do something about this. This isn't one of those problems that kids have that parents don't know what to do about. So I wrote a story about a girl that basically looked like my daughter and had a family like ours. You know, the mother is wearing a job. There's an extended family. Their grandparents are speaking Urdu. They're you know, eating paratha and naan and all the kind of (laughs) stuff that we do. And those are all the things that kids a lot of times first generation kids feel ashamed of because they know that this is different from all my American friends and it makes them feel less American. And it's very sad. And I was seeing that with my own children where they were trying to hide those parts of themselves that were that were based in Pakistan. You know, little things like if we would talk about Pakistan, they would say, well, we're not Pakistani. You are, you know, you're from there. We're not. And it was hard for them to understand, obviously, that you are not just where you're born. You are from, you are whatever uh, your roots are. And it's not America. And so it was a big tension. It was, I was seeing my son being, uh, going through a lot also as he's older. So Yasmin was kind of a gift to my own daughter, and I hope that other kids would find it helpful as well. I didn't realize at that time that, you know, once I got a publisher, it would really take off, and it has. And now, I mean, you would be surprised. Hispanic kids love her. You know, all kinds of kids love her because it's just she is the, the stories are very normal. There's nothing out of the ordinary. It's just basically basic stuff that any child who's that age would go through. But it's just it's just the the setting or the background of it is more multicultural. So you're also editor of um Blue Minaret. Like I mean there's so much that you're doing. I'm I'm uh. I'm so impressed. <laughs> Your magazine uh, breaks these stereotypes, right? What stereotypes are we talking about and how do you create these Muslim experiences in a way where you are breaking stereotypes? Whatever works you're doing, it's a common thread. You're trying to break stereotypes through your books and I'm sure that's an extension of it as well. So basically, I started this magazine because I realized I was into fiction and it was very hard to find any online or print resources mainstream that were Muslims writing fiction. You know, Muslims tend to, for for various reasons, stick to essay writing or nonfiction or poetry. And I was like, well, where are all the stories like I'm writing? And so it was I for most of my life, I've been, well, I have this problem or my child has this problem. Let me solve it. Maybe other people have the same problem. And so I decided to have a forum where people could use storytelling, especially especially fiction, stories, writing, just imaginary stuff that would help 
break the stereotype of this Muslim person just only writing about, I don't know, God. It was, <laughs> you know, if you read the fiction, it's about everything. It's about things that may not be very, quote unquote, Muslim in your opinion. But that's the whole point of, of fiction is it's, you know, there, we don't have anybody telling us what to write. And it was, I also thought that uh, the second second reason, and I, they're equally important, honestly, is that if I want to help, what is the way that we can get more Muslim stories in mainstream media? And a lot of times people face publication obstacles because they are never published. So if you go you know, to an agent or a publisher or a magazine or somewhere with something and you've never, you don't have any bio, you don't have anything to show you've been published somewhere before. It's much harder. And I faced that myself when I was starting out. So I wanted this to be a place where people who are good at writing, but they're not that awesome or they've never been published before, if they have this credit to show, well, we've been published in Blue Minaret, it just makes it a little bit easier for someone else to take you seriously. And so just to be that first step for a lot of people uh, was important, I think, for me. And I hope I have I see a lot of people now who are like talking about, well, I was first published in Blue Minute Red. And I'm like, really? I didn't know that. So it's it's I like that. It's um it's my little contribution. So where can people find like what's the website where people can go and look it up? Uh, it's bloominaret.com. And we just do art. There's this very nicely laid out what the submission guidelines are. And like I said, I'm not one of those very exclusive magazines, which never, which always keep rejecting you. So as long as it's even decently good, I will, we, we do publish you because our editors are really, that's what they're interested in. I mean, we are interested in quality, of course, but also the fact that we have these voices that we want to promote. We want you to have a presence online and hopefully you can use that to go elsewhere. You know, art is a big thing. It's it's art, poetry, and fiction. So I hope that it's helpful to people. And then just, just the stereotype of breaking a role of it also. Anyone can go on there and read and be hopefully be a bit more educated about the diversity of thought an opinion on there. Exactly. So, uh, Sadia, before we end our interview, define America in one word or one sentence based on your experiences. Oh, my God. <laughs> I should have I should have had time to prepare for this. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's such a cliche, but I would say that that is diversity. I think that it really is. We are so diverse. And then uh, a lot of places more than others, definitely, like Houston. But um, that's our strength. That is really our strength. And I really wish that we, more of us, would look at the diversity in this country as a strength. And that's so true. And I always say, and you you are from Pakistan as well. You and I come from a society which is a, which is a very homogenous society, right? So we we do understand the value of diversity and what it brings because we've experienced it and we've seen how, at least for me, I can say this about myself, how my personality has evolved being in a diverse culture uh, where I have learned so much from other cultures and ethnicities and religions, which I did not when I was growing up in Pakistan. And that's that's extremely important. But Sadia, thank you so much. This was so good. And we've learned so much from you today. Tell us where we can find your books. Are they available on Amazon 
or is there any other place where we can go and find them if if somebody were to buy them yes amazon is the best place but they should be i mean barnes and noble target whatever you go um especially online even if they're not in the stores but and you know my website is just my name sadiafaruki.com and if you go on there it has the links to um all the places as well but anywhere books are sold anywhere in the world i just had a school visit from somebody in prague and i had to look up where prague is because apparently they like my books there so i love the lights it's it's very cool and yeah and uh, amazon is the best place honestly thank you sadia and keep doing what you're doing you're doing an amazing job and we need more people like you Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. It was so nice. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you guys want to support us, just share the pod with your friends and family. Help us grow. Come back next week for another story and stay connected. <laughs>